All right. Um, hello, everybody who is or will listen. I'm starting a three or four minutes late because of one of the usual things. The person who always sets this up for me, who also is the person who designed and manages my website, uh, he's always here. He contacted me one minute before six o'clock to say that his internet just went down. So he just coached me through getting this started. So I'm sorry I'm a few minutes late. I'm Charlie. This is the podcast to hell and back. And I welcome everybody. Um, it's a Thursday night, the uh, 18th of February, six o'clock in Massachusetts, where I am. And um, yeah, so let's get started. Um, let me start by just showing you something. If you're, I mean, many people just listen to these, so I'll describe what I'm going to show, or you can see it. If you were to see me right now, you would see me in a sweater and then a shirt under the sweater. And that's what I did for my work today. And now if I lift one of my legs up, you see me in my pajamas uh, below the waist. And so um, I realized just before I started, this is the essence of the podcast today. Uh, it sort of gets at it is this is about dialectics. And uh, this is a dialectical synthesis of me wanting to be uh, lounging around in my pajamas and relaxing and wanting to work and putting it together in my ensemble here. So that's one of the things. Another thing that's a little bit like that, I'm sort of, this is like the end of the podcast rather than the beginning, uh, but sometimes that's just as well. So um, my wife and I have been wondering during the pandemic, like, how are we gonna come out of this? What are we gonna do? Are we gonna live any differently? Are we gonna move anywhere? Are we gonna stay in our house? When do we gonna get back into our offices? Uh, we've been doing all this work in our home. And, you know, we've been having a now and then a dialogue about it. And I'm always a little crazier than her about it because my mind goes all kinds of places. I think we should be doing this and we should be doing that. And there's an opportunity to do this in the next stage of our life. She's much more grounded in these things, which itself is a dialectical balance between her and me when it works, and it's a conflict when it doesn't work. And she just today, you know, so we have questions like, yeah, where do we want to see our clients in the future? Where do we want to live in the future? Uh, I'm always thinking we should also get a place where we can like go to a lake, or we've had many fantasies about getting a place in New York City that we can go to an apartment sometimes or even move. And she, in the late today, while I didn't have any time to process it yet, but she said, you know, I've been thinking, why don't I move, meaning her, she's a psychotherapist too, she's a psychologist, why don't I move my office to the basement and uh, where we have a kind of finished basement where people can get in from the outside. And I make that be my office, even when the pandemic is over and I see people in person there. And sometimes I'll see people on, on Zoom, if that makes sense. And you, and we'll open up that office next door where I work now, which used to be one of our kids' bedrooms. And that can be the room where you wanna have your exercise equipment and, uh, and music, like I've been using guitars lately. 
you know, and then, and, uh, and you can go back and forth into town. I still have my office in downtown Northampton and see people in person because I think you'd like to do some of that, but maybe you'll do some of your work at home on Zoom. And we'll, instead of investing in other things, we'll invest in renovating some things or making some things nicer or refurbishing some things or just kind of like building out where we are because we like where we live. And it just, it just created in me this sense of, oh, wow, I don't have time to think about that, but I feel better already. It just was, it just was relaxing, the idea of just settle down and just be here and build out from here. And, and look at all the different competing and sometimes opposing needs that are caught in that solution, that idea. And so that's an example of not that she was thinking about dialectics at all, but that's an example of a synthesis of putting together things where you have different opposing, potentially conflicting forces and, uh, it, and you're having some degree of angst about it. And then you come up with a solution that honors the wisdom of the different competing points of view. That's the essence of the idea. I'll get back to it in different ways. And so, you know, and, and when it works, it's a really good thing. When it works, it really is a good thing. And, uh, and then after a little while, usually once you've adopted a synthesis, after a while, you start realizing that the synthesis is just now the next new thing. And now it gets opposed by other things. So now you're still in the middle of, of, of a dialectical universe, a universe in which opposing forces are always at work, are always jostling around, that it's never settled for very long before there's a, you elicit a new opposing force. And so that's kind of where, uh, uh, where I also want to end today, <laughs> because it's a brilliant, by now it's sort of woven into so many forms of thought in our culture that there's nothing very new about it. But I still think as a supervisor, as a consultant, as a therapist, as a writer, I still don't think most people stop and think very method methodically about how to use this to solve their life problems, like use it on purpose. It's great when it just happens. I mean, another example, pandemic-related example. This part of the suffering in the pandemic of being stuck, of being in one place. Uh, and, and anytime you think of going to a store or a movie or a restaurant or a gathering or go traveling or anything, you run into the same potential barrier about safety from the virus and the public health guidelines. So they, it confines your movements in so many ways and, and, and it sort of proposes a lot of human needs that we have and, and just customs that we're used to. So dealing with that, you know, and I thought, gee, I, I wanna do something, I wanna go somewhere. And uh, so, I've, you know, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, my 22 year old and I, and I've mentioned this before at an earlier podcast, that we took a, an, a trip in an RV uh, and RVs have been selling out like hotcakes and also being rented out. And it was very hard to even find a rental of an RV. On the East Coast, we went down to Virginia to get a rental to drive to South Carolina to take our golf clubs and not have to leave to go to a restaurant or even a grocery store, took all the food we needed. And you've got a bathroom on board and then you can just go and, and have a safe trip in the middle of a not very safe country. And we did do that and we played golf each day and we had a nice time together. Um, 
uh, once we figured out that he was better at driving the RV than I was. And so, you know, that was another synthesis. Um, you get the idea if you didn't already. Uh, and I know if I'm talking to DBT therapists, you already think about these things all the time and you study them and it's part of the training. But this podcast is for anybody who listens, who doesn't necessarily think in these uh, ways, but it's, a, it's kind of a brilliant thing to have this way of thinking that I'm gonna break down a little bit more sort of step by step. Um, okay, next thing I wanna say. Let's say you start your thinking process here with misery. Like there's some version of misery. You know, I've had a lot. I mean, when you're a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist and you're doing your work, you encounter a lot of misery every week, a lot of adversity every week. You don't need to look very far. I mean, you have it in your own life, but you also find it in your patients. So uh, for example, take a teenager, a 14 year old, uh, who by now has had two years of chronic pain with a syndrome that's probably going to remain. And you don't know how long it's going to remain, but other people who've had this syndrome, it has remained and remained and remained, and some people have it for life. And the kid is smart. The kid reads the internet, and the kid knows this, and, the, and has a, a, you know, an intelligent family that has done the research on this. So this kid is like living as a 14-year-old as a, as a is already encountering every minute every day, chronic pain in her legs. And uh, she can ne almost never forget about it. And it's really hard to distract from it. And so she was a really good student and a really good athlete and theatrical person and a busy person who now is mostly doing none of those things. And certainly none of them very well and living on Zoom with her schooling and uh, which doesn't work very well for her. And she's just like snowballed down worse and worse. And so I was consulting. Um, that would be an example of misery. There's the misery of being the parent of a child in pain or a teenager who's suffering or a family member with substance use and repeated relapses and close to death experiences uh, or uh, you were going along fine in your family until you had your oldest child became 19 and uh, had a first psychotic experience, psychotic episode that was really debilitating. Um, or um, you just finding that you have fallen into a depression and it could be a lot of reasons why, but whatever it is, it is making you very miserable and it's generating a lot of hopeless thoughts and even suicidal thoughts or you have PTSD and every time you go somewhere, something triggers you again and again. So, you know, there's so many versions that, that we could just do one whole depressing podcast, just naming all the versions of hell that people get into. But this is a podcast about getting in and out of hell. So I wanna, I wanna talk about, you start out in this conversation that I'm having with you. I mean, that's sort of a euphemism, isn't it? I'm having a conversation with myself with you. And, uh, but I'm sort of thinking through, you start with misery, some version of adversity, some version of emotional discomfort uh, or physical pain. And, uh, and where do you go from there? Well, you know, 
I think you go, you, when you want to try to tackle it, and you want to try to change it, you want to try to do something about it, do whatever you can about it, you start by just experiencing the nature of what it is. If you are unable or unwilling to experience the nature of what it is, chances are you're going to do things that aren't very helpful in the long run. Like maybe you'll start using substances or you'll start using other self-destructive behaviors in order to escape from the immediate recognition of the misery that you're in or the pain that you're in. And then you're stuck with those things, uh, which is kind of like not solved anything except for the moment. And in the long run, it's made things worse. So that's not unusual to get that or you bury yourself in work or you bury yourself in exercise or you change your eating patterns or something like that. But it, a smart thing to do is, and you might need to do this by engaging somebody else to do it with, like a therapist or a friend or anybody else, a parent, a family member, is like really get down to what is the nature of my suffering? What is wrong? What exactly is wrong? Because usually when you're suffering a lot, you're kind of like stuck with the headlines and the most intense feeling states. And that isn't necessarily the best path to figuring out what to do. Because what you do about those things is you try to get rid of them and try to distract from them or try to anesthetize yourself from them. And so what you got to get do is get down into the weeds of what's going on and when did it start and how did it start and what are the controlling variables? What are the factors that are keeping it going? And as far as you can identify them and the best state of mind in which to do this is not when you're at your most high misery. It's when you're a little bit less miserable or your misery is buffeted a little bit by the fact that you're with somebody else or buffered a little bit. So it sort of helps you tolerate things while you sit there and try to sink down into what is this I'm experiencing? Where am I experiencing it in my body? And when did it start? And, and what interpersonal situations have contributed to this and have contributed to me not being able to get out of this? And what kind of thoughts are contributing to this and not making it possible to get out of it? And what kinds of problems with sleep and other biologically based problems? There's so many things you can look at, but it's kind of like, if you want to find something that's well hidden in the, in the grass, you sometimes have to spend like a couple hours sifting through the grass to find your contact lens or to find your hearing aid, which happened to me once. And I just went and I just went and I thought, you know what, if I go through every inch of this area, inch by inch, blade of grass by blade of grass, it has to be here. And it was only through that methodology that I actually found. And when I found it, it felt like a miracle, though it was, of course, just naturally there it was. I mean, it didn't go somebody or somewhere else. It went down in the grass. It, and probably I was taking a mask off of my face from the pandemic. And those things tend to pull your hearing aids out. And so I lost the hearing aid and then I found it, but it took a couple of hours, literally, of a methodology of inch by inch. And I couldn't have done that if I was in a highly aroused emotional state. So you kind of have to get out of the emotional state and then characterize the nature of your distress. Okay, now let's say you've done that. And there's a couple important questions to be asking yourself as you go through that. Like, like how much of, what I've, of my misery, how much of my distress is basically the result of a hardwired situation by either hardwired in my nervous system, in my body, um, hardwired in my family, in my context. You know, um, if, if it's something that's just 
the cause of inevitable pain. In other words, anybody would feel it if they had this set of conditions. Uh, there's nothing added on. It's just tough. It's a tough situation. It's a painful situation and you haven't maybe figured out what to do about it yet. It's just important to figure out that that is true because then there's another category of characteristics of suffering which have to do with your add-ons to that inevitable misery. And those add-ons are things like saying, like, you know, the kid I was talking about, I will never be done with this pain. I will have this pain until I die. I will never be able to have a normal life. I will never be able to have normal relationships. And I was, I'm just a teenager and I'm just getting to know people, but I'm the one that can't do the things the other kids can do now. And that'll always be true of me. And what did I do wrong that I got this and somebody else didn't get this? And why is this, this is so unfair. And what about the fact that these people don't really understand how much pain it is and they try to tell me to go to school when I don't think I can stand it or walk when I don't think I can stand it or go to physical therapy when I think it doesn't do anything for me. It's just sort of like living within this situation that consists of this combination of variables over which you don't have a lot of control. They came about, they're inevitable causes of suffering. And then there's the ones like what you're telling yourself, which actually, even though they all quote, make sense when you hear me say them, of course you might feel the same way and think the same way. You know, many of the things I just said are add-ons and you can do more about add-ons potentially, it can be very hard. Uh, you get caught up and especially if you're getting very emotional, the add-ons just multiply like, you know, moths getting, taking over your house. <laughs> that happened to us last year. So that, that image came to mind. But it's sort of like once you have all these add-ons uh, that, that, that are the things you, you might say it's the thinking that you're attached to, the thoughts you're attached to. And, they, and you just take them as givens, as facts, and you don't differentiate between the fact that you have chronic pain and that's a given, and that's gonna be there at least for the time being, but you actually, if you think about it carefully, you actually don't know if it's gonna stay the same. You don't know if it's gonna go away or not. You don't know if it's gonna make a meaningful, interesting, enjoyable life even, impossible or not. You can find counterexamples of all kinds. You know, so the fact that you start telling yourself these things, you are just paving the road to hell and might be paving the road eventually to suicide if you can't find a way out. So, uh, because this person is also depressed. Um, so it's important when you're getting to know your misery to get to know it well, to not just run away from it and try to do away with it and anesthetize yourself and to spell it out, almost describe it, almost to write it out and to tease out what's, what is the stuff over which you have very little control and what's the stuff over which you have some control. So that's just an important, that's one of many things that can be helpful when you're trying to figure out what to do. But you have to start when you're figuring out what to do about your misery is take your misery seriously. And if you haven't already done that because it's just been so miserable, you have to be able to somehow stand aside while inside your own misery, it's a dialectical thing to do, to be inside your misery and also stand aside your misery and characterize it. That's why I say it's so helpful sometimes to do that with somebody else. Now, once you're there, 
I'm what I've been doing in the last two podcasts and what I want to do in this one is give you a methodology that can then be applied to lots of different kinds of suffering, including the suffering that comes with the pandemic. And I'll probably pull examples out of that. But this is about more than just that. Because this is not just a, a podcast about the various DBT skills you can use to tolerate the pandemic or to make it go better, all of which are, I mean, and I would say about that, most DBT skills are useful. Uh, I mean, just millions of examples and people are teaching them. So this is not really the go-to place for all of that. Though, for instance, if you just want to get settled down, the mindfulness skills in DBT, uh, as borrowed from spirituality, are brilliant. I mean, in helping you settle down, helping you get balanced, helping you see clearly, helping you be more aware and more accepting of the reality of the universe with you right now, that there are all those skills, and there's a group of reality acceptance skills, six of them to name the number, and then there's uh, an, an leading off with radical acceptance of reality. So there's lots of things you can do to both accept and to change things. But this is a, a somewhat different kind of approach. This is taking the three, you might say, perspectives on um, intervention that are woven inextricably together in DBT. They are interdependent. They stand on their own. They are complete whole philosophies and disciplines. They each carry methodologies with them. And they're all sort of embedded within DBT. And the first one is what I'll just call a pro the problem-solving perspective. I also called it in the last podcast the straight line perspective, meaning when you're on your way from point A to point B, you're trying to get somewhere. And so it's a straight line idea where there is a destination and there's a way to get where you're going. And there's obstacles on the way to get where you're going, and you need to solve the obstacles to get where you're going. And so that's a whole, you don't realize it when you're in it, that that actually is a whole disciplined model of how to think. And it's captured in, in many different places. You know, it's every discipline has its technology. And DBT and cognitive behavioral therapies have their technology. And the technology is the technology of destinational thinking, the technology of going in a, a line towards destination B and running into obstacles and trying to figure out how to circumvent or solve those obstacles on the way. That's what it's all about. Sort of like a board game. You could make a board game of CBT, like shoots and ladders, how to get from point A to point B. That, that, that could be the form of the whole thing. And you're using all the strategies in DBT on your way, the, the cognitive behavioral strategies. And it's incredible. I mean, and in my opinion of these three perspectives, even though I think it's useful to use all of them and use all of them in combination, you really want to put a lot of money on this particular um, perspective, uh, looking at the world through, gosh, I'd like to get from here to there. Like, you know, the girl I'm talking about, I won't say exactly what her life dreams were because then that would even further characterize who she is. And I, I'm just talking about her already having disguised a couple things. And, but she had some dreams that are quite wonderful, you know, that you might not think that a 14 year old would have about her life when she's been coping with two years of chronic pain. So she has her eyes on the prize, but she also thinks the prize is out of reach. So part of the, part of the job of this kind of methodology how do you reattach her 
to that uh, prize? How do you reattach her to the imagination of where she could get that would make her happy? How can you attach her to the steps on the way to that imagination so that she doesn't have to wait forever, but she's already doing things? This actually had to do with doing something that I said, you know, I said, this girl has been visited with a terrible fate, really unlucky, this, this, this pain syndrome. You know what? One of the things you should think about doing and treating her is to bring her some incredible luck. Like go to work, spend your time working to find somebody with whom she doesn't have to wait until she's like 25 to be doing this dreamed of activity. Like, so she can go there now and shadow somebody or do something. And they were like, oh my God, you think she could do that? I said, you never know. You just never know. But you want to join with the kid's dream and you want to join with the person, a so-called life worth living idea, and then try to find what would be the first step to get there. And can we focus on the first step? And can we get you excited about the first step? Can we help you get take that step, even with all the pain you have or the misery you have, or help you move beyond your depression, at least for a moment, in trying to get something that's going to be reinforcing in your life? And so there's, there's that whole methodology that, that has, as I already talked about, it, five steps to it. One is really finding a direction with a destination whether it's a short-term destination, like I want to get through the day and get to tonight, or I want to renovate my house or change a couple things about it, or I want to get going on exercise, or I want to get going on exposing myself to things I've never done before because I'm so suffocated by the, mm, the sameness of day after day of living in the same place and not being able to travel anywhere or go places where there's more variety. So I've got to generate variety. You know, all these things are destinations and you can you can look at them from that point of view, try to generate commitment, strengthen it, look at the factors that will help with perseverance, since no matter what you identify, if it's a tough thing, you will fade in your resolve. And then when you encounter obstacles to have a methodology for figuring out the nature of the obstacles and then trying to have solutions to that. And that's what DBT is and CBT is all about. Um, and then having those tools that you need to do that. That's all sort of the methodology of the perspective of problem solving, of doing, of a straight line. Second methodology, second perspective, completely different world, but it's interwoven in DBT, is you might say the perspective of mindfulness, the perspective of, uh, and the methodologies of mindfulness the ways to get yourself to basically the, the most, the single most important core of the experience of mindfulness is to be able to absolutely be present in the moment that you are in rather than the moment you're on your way to. So there, it isn't based on a destination whatsoever. In fact, if you have a destination in mind for why you're doing mindfulness, it's already going away from the essential idea of mindfulness, which is actually you're just being. And you're just being there. And it's a really incredibly valuable thing to do. And some people never do it on purpose, though they have done it in their lives many times. Children do it a lot without calling it that. Um, but it, it really is so that if you are on a destination, on your way on the destination, you stop, so to speak, metaphorically. You stop and you pay attention. You wake up. You wake up so that you're no longer thinking, I'm on my way on to my destination. 
you now are like destinationless for the moment. It doesn't mean you're no longer heading to your destination, but you've let go of that 100%, which is part of the challenge is like people let go a little bit and say, well, I, I was a little mindful today. Yet doesn't quite capture the radical nature of mindfulness. The radical nature of mindfulness is that maybe for one minute you actually didn't do anything else other than just let your attention settle into your body, into your breath, or into what you see around you, or into the conversation you're in, or the sights and the sounds and the smells that are coming into your nervous system. That is in itself an activity for which there is no other destination other than to arrive at the present moment. And since you're already there, it sort of has to have a different way of thinking than being a destination. It's sort of like just letting yourself be there, which means letting go of other destinations. So in some ways it's the antithesis, um, like the problem solving perspective is the perspective of doing and trying to solve and trying to figure out and fix and get somewhere. And the mindfulness perspective is the perspective of just being, of letting go of doing for the moment even if you keep doing, which is then becomes a dialectical thing to do, which is that you're on your way somewhere, but in the process, you're going to be mindful of every moment. And so you can, it isn't like you have to give up the ship in order to stop and be mindful. You don't have to go sit under a tree for an hour. You can be mindful while you're walking on the street on your way to the, wherever you go. So there's mindfulness and it's, it's the, the second perspective and sometimes I thought the first perspective I would call the perspective of purpose. And the second one, the perspective of presence. And it's this interwoven back and forth, mutually reinforcing and balancing activity between pur seeking purpose and then seeking presence and going back and forth and how they in a way fertilize each other. That, you know, if you, for instance, if you are working really hard, and a lot of you're, those of you who are therapists, I mean, therapists have worked really hard during this pandemic under circumstances that are weird, different, somewhat confining, but often, um, often conducive to doing some of the work, but, but also finding that there's an awful lot of people to treat and there's a lot of misery out there. And people are seeking out therapists the way they're seeking out RVs. You know, <laughs> there's not many fair therapists left to be found. They've all been rented out. Um, that's what I find when I try to help somebody find a therapist. And so, um, uh, <laughs> I was just saying, dur during the, I was going to say something about during the work of being in, in the situation of being a therapist. Um, I'm sorry. This is, a, this is an example of how you, you just know that you're in a podcast that's authentic because I'm just not very polished. You know, <laughs> sorry about that if, if that matters to you. But I'll, I'm, if it was, a, I, I was I, I've always thought that if someone has a really good idea, it'll come back around. Um, so you're, 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 once you're in the present moment, and that, that is the centerpiece of mindfulness, Several things follow from that that I mentioned last time, and I'll mention more quickly this time. It's sort of my way of teaching, I'm afraid. It could be redundant, but it's also kind of like trying to put all of this together and then build up to the new stuff. So um, 
once you really are frequently waking up into the present moment, which includes waking up into the nature of reality, you start to notice sort of down in the weeds of reality, some basic principles about reality that usually escape our minds. And actually they are very nourishing. They're very healing. One of them is that idea I talked about last time, I talked about already this time of non-attachment, of recognizing how you clutch at things, you clutch at ideas, you clutch at judgments, you clutch at emotions, you clutch at situations that you wish were present, or you clutch to get to certain situations because you can't stand other situations. Whereas to be mindful <coughs> is to recognize that that kind of grasping and clutching and, and embracing and hanging on for dear life to certain ideas about how you have to live your life or how you have to experience your misery or how you have to deal with other people, that those things are very confining and, and yet we live by them, we live and die by them. So the what first thing is the principle of non-attachment of how incredibly valuable it is. And it's not easy to do, even though we do it sometimes. Oh, I know what I was going to say about the therapist. I'll come back. <laughs> I'll forget it again and I'll come back. Um, so it's sort of like, how do you just keep letting go and letting go and letting go? Those of you who have raised children uh, or are in the process of raising children, it is one of the things that every parent shares with any other parent if they're insightful about what has happened while they're parents is that parenting is just this process of letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. No, my child is not going to do that. No, I wish my child were doing that, but they're not doing that. No, my child shouldn't talk to me that way or to his mom or dad that way or, his, or shouldn't treat his brother or sister that way. But then he does anyway. And, and I thought my child was going to be a this or do a that. And they don't. And, and so it's just this kind of like, okay, I wish I had started my parenting experience with more of this kind of perspective because it really makes life uh, not only easier, but more skillful, go more skillfully. And you don't end up in as many tangles with your children that could have been avoided because they're based on add-ons, your own add-ons to the inevitable reality of whoever your child is. So there's non-attachment. There is impermanence. So there's recognizing when you're looking closely that actually it's just everything's always changing. Everything's always changing, changing. And I said this last time, and I, I, I think sometimes I say these kind of things again and again because it has taken me a while to actually appreciate the depth and value of some of these principles that are easy to say and sound very trite. And they're almost part of our uh, pop culture to talk about these things, but actually to recognize impermanence changes your entire perspective on life. I mean, from the, the, the moment you're with somebody that matters to you or the moment you have a precious moment with yourself um, and you just appreciate things in a different way. You appreciate things in the way you might appreciate things if you know you were going to die tomorrow. And this is going to be your last time because this is reality. This is it. This is it. This moment is it. Right? So there's that, um, that principle. And then beyond non-attachment and, uh, and impermanence, there's the principle that I haven't said enough about, really, about of interbeing. Because when you are in the present moment, in a way that is repeated or for a, a while, not only do you do notice these other things, I think you notice interbeing in a way that you didn't other, otherwise. 
And by interbeing, I'm using the term of Thich Nhat Hanh to capture things that everybody who teaches about Buddhism and some other disciplines uh, all say. Um, so, um, uh, for instance, I said this last time, something about when you have a thought or when you have a gesture or when you have an action or when you make a decision or when you have an interaction with somebody and you think that there's something unique about that that represents who you are, actually you're forgetting that all you are is the product of everything else that was, everything else that came into being you, everything else that's influenced you and that is still influencing you. So that when I teach a workshop, for instance, it's harder to do in a way with the podcast because I'm not interacting with anybody. I'm interacting with my own imagination of you. Um, and it, and it, so it's really my own imagination. It might represent some of you because I've done this for a while. But when I teach a workshop in person, I sometimes feel when I'm just teaching that actually just words are coming out and concepts are coming out and ideas are coming out but actually they were scripted by the people in the audience that I'm talking to and that I'm just, I'm in to some degree, I, I'm, I'm a product of my past. I'm a product of all the teachers I've ever had that are all coming through me. I'm the medium that's channeling all these previous learnings. And I'm also channeling what I'm picking up from the audience that I'm talking to. So actually in a sense, I'm entirely made up of things that are not me. And that's the essence of interbeing is to recognize that in yourself, that you are entirely made up of elements that didn't come from you. And there's no you there. There's nothing that when you die and they do an autopsy, they're gonna say, we found it. We found, this, the, we found the unique element of Charlie Swenson. You just won't find it with anybody. You just find cells and tissues and, 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 and nervous systems. And you find all these things and there's some, patterns and configurations, but these are patterns and configurations that came about because of other people and other influences in your life. So if you really take that on, it's a radically transforming way to think, you know, and even to think what's the boundary between me and another person sort of dissolves in the face of that. Because where do I leave off and where do you begin when actually what I am is partly you? I mean, and if you take that seriously and think carefully about it, even in conversations, this idea of, no, I have something to say, it's, it's sort of, you know, very ego filled when you are insisting that you have something to say, because actually, if you have something to say, have you ever noticed in a group, sometimes you have something to say, but you don't get a chance to say it. And within the next minute, someone else says it or something like it. It's just because it's, you're just part of the group. And that idea came out, not just from you. So that's an important idea. And the last principle that you start to notice when you're in the present moment a lot, and it's a way to help get through the pandemic to be in the present moment, because the pandemic is filled with all kinds of uh, projections into the future. How long is this gonna be? How fair is it that people are getting vaccines and some of them are not? And is it really gonna work anyway? And I'm afraid to go out of my house now because I haven't been out of my house very much and because it's gonna kill me or, you know, or I'm gonna infect somebody else. All these ideas of which, which are based on reality but they are add-ons to reality actually can be very inhibiting and cause more suffering and more suffocation uh, so that, and, and they can shut down the possibility of solving things by just sort of like, you know what, I think I'll just adopt a present moment attitude today the best I can and I'm just gonna to live today. 
I'm just going to live today as if it wasn't, you know, a pandemic right now. But I, but I, on the other hand, I'll pay attention. But I'm just going to like, gee, I wonder what I want to do today that I haven't done for a while. And maybe there's a little freedom that you free up because you let go of your attachment to some of the ideas. So what about dialectics? Dialectics is a third perspective. It is a third perspective. And even though it is, um, you might say it's partially made up of the problem solving perspective, and it's partially made up of the mindfulness perspective. How could it not be after what I've just said? It's a perspective that doesn't stand alone on its own. It stands on the shoulders of other perspectives, but it does have some things to offer that I just think are helpful methodologies for how to think about being stuck. So what's the essence of dialectics? The essence, the essence, the essence. Because notice that the essence, even though there's several principles of mindfulness and many practices of mindfulness, that the essence is, is to be in the present moment and be there without distortion of reality, without judgment about reality, and to just be there. And the, and the essence of the problem-solving paradigm is to fix on a destination, make it a destination that makes sense for you, and that's compelling and that's specific enough that it actually you can attach to it and try to get there and then solve the obstacles on the way. This is basically, these are the paradigms. But what's the dialectical paradigm? The dialectical paradigm is made up of two basic propositions or interrelated steps is another way to think of it. The first is the recognition that way more than we usually think, because we don't go around paying attention to this, though if you stop and bring your attention to it, you realize it's mostly true, is that reality just is made up. It's part of the nature of reality, that it's one thing colliding against another thing. It's positive versus negative. It's man and woman. It is, and, and the synthesis of man and woman uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, it, it's, it's, it's one idea and then an antithesis of that idea, an op opposing idea. And it's just sort of like that's reality. The more you can settle and relax into the fact that if you say something, someone else is going to disagree with you. Like, let's say you're a therapist and you suggest something to your patient and your patient says, well, that's a stupid idea. You can just think, well, of course that's the case. I just proposed something, and now what I got back was, you know, a pushback, uh, an opposition to, to what I proposed. And that's just the nature. The more you can just sort of think that's the nature of reality, you're not surprised by pushback. You're not surprised. And it actually creates freedom in you because it makes it possible for you to think, you know what? I'm going to say what I think. I'm actually going to say what I think because I have the reassurance in this perspective that someone else will push back. Someone else will challenge me. And that's a good thing, rather than just sort of like thinking I'm gonna push people over or I'm gonna say something and it won't get challenged. I mean, no, you know, so you, you get a little more bold and you push a little harder and then the pushback comes harder and something creative comes out of that when it works well. So the first idea, the first central organizing idea of dialectics is that the world is filled up of opposites, that an action elicits the counteraction, the antithesis of it, right? But then it's that next step that, that nails the idea of, of what's, what is it to think dialectically, to think that the, the way one discovers the truth in life is through dialectical process. 
not through figuring out what's the right truth or who has the truth or what is the real reality. It's really proposing something within reality. And then there being a pushback that's different, that opposes what you proposed. And then the next, that, and so that's the beginning. And, and what you're, so then what you're looking for is to find a synthesis that captures the wisdom of proposition number one and the wisdom of opposition number one or proposition number two. When you've got two competing uh, back and forths, you know, I want to be uh, safe during the pandemic and follow all the guidelines. And I want to preserve my contact with other people. I want to be safe during the pandemic. And I want to keep exposing myself to variety of activity and learning or knowledge or sensations or, you know, I want to be safe during the pandemic and I want to have some way to get what I have gotten in the past out of traveling or out of congregating with people. Not how can I give up one for the other? That would not be the dialectical truth-seeking method that you're looking for synthesis all the time. And life is just made up of one synthesis after another synthesis after another synthesis, if you could think that way, rather than getting stuck in black and white thinking where you have to be on one side of the fence. No, take that one side of the fence, but also be ready to let go of it and adopt part of the other side. When somebody comes back and says, well, I think that's a terrible idea. And then you can say, so tell me what you think's a better idea. Well, I think such and such is a better idea. And you might say, hmm, you know, I see what you're talking about. That is a good idea, but I don't want to give up my idea. I actually thought my idea was pretty good too. It just sounds like they're kind of like contradicting each other. And so that's the dialectical moment. It isn't the moment of discovering that things oppose each other. It isn't the moment of getting caught between those oppositions. The dialectical moment, if there's one, is that moment when you hang on to both sides, when you recognize the wisdom on both sides and you hang on to the wisdom on both sides as best as you can, not knowing for sure yet what exactly is the most important nature of wisdom that you're grabbing on one side or another. But, you're, but it really is, so the first two steps, and then I'm gonna give you three things that come out of this. I think there's kind of three principles of dialectics. If you read about di the nature of dialectics in philosophy, and dialectics of biology, the dialectics of art history, the dialectics of history, the dialectics of psychology, the dialectics as Linehan talked about them. Um, there's basically some main propositions or main um, principles. So in addition to those two, the first one being that oppositions always happen and you're always caught in them. Uh, and, uh, and number two is, is to try to find the validity on both sides and hang on to it and allow a synthesis to develop, recognizing that a synthesis cannot be constructed. I think that's a big mistake. I hear some people in DBT when I'm supervising or when I'm sitting in on a team, have people say, okay, let's now, so let's, so what would the synthesis be? You know, that's a short circuited way. The idea, the thing that's more creative Dialectics is about as the most creative thing there is in DBT, if you understand it, because it really means you're hanging on to two opposing things and you're allowing a playing field to exist between them, a transitional space between the two of them and allow a third thing to come into 
being. And maybe it's never been there before. Maybe somebody has never put together their right hand and their left hand the way you're going to put together your right hand and your left hand uh, if they're opposing each other. Or you're going to put together the uh, hanging on to the wisdom of being safe in the pandemic and hanging on to the wisdom of preserving your humanity and your connectedness and your variety and your aliveness in the face of the pandemic and all of the safety guidelines is that you will come up with a different construction than anybody else. And it'll be slightly different and maybe it'll be modeled after other people because none of us is like totally builds the wheel from the beginning. So the idea though is that once you're doing this, there are three ways, there are three principles that help you on your way to finding or allowing a synthesis to happen. Principle number one is the principle of transactions. Principle of transactions is built on what I've already said, and it a little bit includes some of the mindfulness concepts, is that actually when two things are in transaction with each other, two oppositions, it could be two people, it could be me and a client of mine that are in opposition, it could be me and one of my children are in opposition around something, me and my wife might be in opposition, me and myself might be in opposition, but or, or two things might be in opposition. Whatever it is, once they're in opposition, that means they're in relationship. And when they're in relationship, they're in an interbeing relationship with each other. They're partly made up of each other. And if you change one of them, the other will change. Inevitably, it might not change visibly, it might not change immediately, but if you've been being a certain way and now you are a new way in a relationship where there's a lot of opposition, it will change that relationship and that will change the other person. So one of the principles of finding synthesis is sometimes you probe, you explore, you play by doing something different yourself. Try out something different and just see, like maybe you've just been in a, a battle with somebody else and you're just always taking a certain position and you feel you have to keep reinforcing your position or else they won't listen to you. And all of a sudden, one day you decide, you know, I'm going to be totally different today. I'm just going to try what it's like. I'm going to actually say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to defend my position at all today. When I'm talking to you, I just absolutely want to be 120% devoted to just hearing your position. That's all. And I'm not going to do anything with it other than just try to get it. I'm not going to counter it. I'm not going to tell you my position. I think you know my position. Just doing that will change the other person one way or another. So recognizing that transactions are always going on, it's not just something that you make happen, it's automatic. This next thing that's automatic is that no matter where you are, who you are, or what you are, you are part of a larger system. And so it's systemic thinking. And systemic thinking, which has been, uh, which has been the, the, you know, it's just been the philosophy that's been at the basis of, of feminism, of, uh, of lots of family therapy techniques and lots of other, uh, lots of therapy techniques in general. But the idea is that um, you are always in interaction with a system, a larger system, and there's a system, systems within you that are interact, interacting with you. So that if I'm stuck in something with someone else, say I'm trying to change somebody I'm working with. Like I just was, I just, I was working with a person in my, in therapy and I didn't feel things were going very far. And, and I thought I was trying everything I knew how to try. 
And I, I sort of felt like we're sort of stuck. I mean, it's nothing terrible, but it just seems we're at a plateau and we're kind of stuck. And this is a, a young person who's a little older than a teenager. So I wouldn't normally think, oh, let's do family therapy or something. And I thought, you know what? I want to do something a little different. I want to get into the system a little. And, and I had never, you know, sat down like that with her parents. And so we had a meeting on Zoom that then included her parents that was not framed as family therapy. It was just framed as an informational meeting for me to find out what their perspective was on their daughter and for them to ask me questions if they wanted to, as long as it was within the range of permission of, permission of my client. And um, we came out of a one hour meeting and my client got back to me and said, I don't know exactly why, but that was incredibly helpful. Just going back and connecting back with some of those things with now what you and I are talking about, it just, you know, you could just tell that it helped and it helped me too. And I think it probably helped the parents too. And it was just because I thought, I want to do something else. I, I want to. I want to change this. Um, op, op, whatever is the opposition that's going on here that has us stuck. I'd like to bring in a new ingredient that's part of the system, and see what happens. And it doesn't doesn't always work in a way that you wish it would, but it is going to change that equation, that transaction, that opposition. It's going to do something to it. So. That's true too, if you're facing some sort of dilemmas and misery and stuckness in during the pandemic or any other time, is that you're, you, get, you get fixed on something that you don't like. I don't like this about the pandemic. I don't like this situation or I don't like this with this relationship. And then you get stuck in that as if you're caught in a bubble in a dyad, a bubble with a dyad that's in opposition with each other. And so one place to go with systemic thinking is just, you know, let's get outside the dyad. Let's even go on a walk together. Let's, let's bring in a different concept. Let's try something different, you know, and just see how it goes. Experiment. Um, be bold. And then, and then be awake once you're bold. Like, notice what happens. And the last principle of the dialectics is just inherent in other things I've said, which is the recognition and capitalizing on the recognition that things are always in motion. As much as stuckness makes you feel that things are static, things are paralyzed, things are stagnant, things are at an impasse, therefore nothing's moving. Actually, it takes enormous energy to maintain an impasse because you have to keep, when actually everything was cha everything's changing at every level, from the molecule up to the human being and the and the family system and the and society that actually to have a stuckness that stays for very long requires a lot of energy and so what you want to do is recognize that that, that is and go with movement always be seeking movement and sometimes actually maybe you've been doing too much movement and that's why you're stuck and therefore it might be better just to sit still and when you sit still you find movement happens because part of your movement was that you kept moving in the same directions and kept getting stuck. So, you know, we're at the end of our time um, together in one minute. And um, uh, so I appreciate your listening. I, I'm hoping something in here made sense to you and that you could apply it to almost any situation, whether it's a clinical situation, a family situation, your own misery in certain situations it doesn't have to be incredible misery, but just all kinds of misery takes these forms and you get stuck 
and you and it helps to have the present moment perspective which can change things it helps to have the dialectical perspective which is sort of like a methodical way of saying you know let me find the opposition that's buried in this misery let me tease it out let me specify the two sides or the three sides or the four sides and how they're in opposition now let me see the validity in each of those things now let me hang on to the validity in each of those things while I let my mind, my creative mind, my wise mind go to work or as a system go to work, put out an opposition within a system of people and let the system grapple with it and come up with a synthesis that honors both sides. And the way I usually do it is I say, okay, the wisdom of this side is such and such. And then I'll think the wisdom of this other side is such and such. And if I can specify in my own words and in my own thoughts, the wisdom on both sides, that's a good starting point for now. How can I hang on to those things, keep thinking about them and allow a synthesis to develop between them? That isn't what I would call the middle path because some people use that term and they almost think geographically, it means like finding the middle way or finding the compromise in the middle. It might not be a compromise at all. It's just a way of encompassing both types of wisdom in the same construction, whatever that construction is. Uh, and, then, and then you find that, and now you move towards that synthesis. So that's to me the kind of like rough methodology of using dialectics in the face of misery uh, is that you, you lay it out that way as opposed to on a straight line or as opposed to just being present with whatever it is. Again, hope it was helpful. I will stop now. Um, and uh, you can always email me uh, with any feedback or thoughts about this or questions about this to follow up on. Uh, it's it's c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Or you can write me through the website. Thank you so much, everybody. And I noticed Mark got onto the internet again. I appreciate Mark uh, joining, rejoining me. <laughs> you know, to do any troubleshooting. I think we did all right, but we'll find out after the recording is done. Okay. Everybody, bye.